Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And the verses 1 through 4 are the text for this morning. And this afternoon it will be the verses 5 through 8. As a word of introduction, James is a small book with five chapters and 108 verses. And when you read through this letter in one sitting, it will not take very long before you discover how profoundly practical this letter is and how piercingly powerful its implications. Some of the books of the Bible stress the indicatives of the gospel, directing us to what we have in Christ. And many of the chapters of the book of Romans are written in this way, as an example. But this letter is punctuated by some 60 imperatives or commands by the things God calls us to do. And what we will read this morning is no exception. So let us prepare our hearts now as we hear God's word. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat, then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So far the reading of Scripture. In response to the proclamation of God's word, we will sing Psalm 43, stanzas 3, 4, and 5. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, how do you respond when you are met with trials and troubles in your life. If we are honest, and we're supposed to be honest, most of us would admit that we don't do very well, do we? We'd rather do without them and are quite alarmed and dismayed when adversity comes our way. And even though we confess to believe in God the Father Almighty, we respond poorly when hard things 
are put on our path. We get upset when our tranquility is disturbed. And we forget the words of our Lord who promised that in all things He works for the good of those who love Him. All things. We easily become disturbed by the troubles that assail us. They distract us so that we no longer see things in the bigger picture of God's plan for His people. We forget that we are pilgrims who are passing through this world and nothing in this world is really ours to keep. Here we have no lasting city. In our materialistic society, it is easy for Christians to become like the world. We live for the here and now, even though we say we don't. And consequently, we act as if we are entitled to the good life. Isn't that often how we define being blessed by God? We think of blessing in terms of health, wealth, prosperity, and the good things we receive. But the scriptures tell us a different story. Blessing comes to us from God when our sins are forgiven us through the merit and the shedding of Christ's blood. And even though we deserve to be struck down by the wrath of God, we are permitted to live in this fallen world because Jesus took the curse of God on himself to fill us with his blessing. Being blessed by God does not free us from trials, troubles, tribulation, and trauma, but gives us peace and joy in afflictions, the afflictions that we experience in this present time. Now, trials can hit us gradually or quite suddenly, and they come in various forms, we are told in James. Your trial may be a health concern, financial difficulty, a struggle against a particular sin. Trials can come in the form of disappointments, depression, frustrations, misunderstandings, unfulfilled dreams, unmet expectations, hurtful gospel, gossip, not gossip, but gospel, but gossip. Tremendous loss, betrayal, infidelity, loneliness, fear, anxiety, criticism, or conflict. And in such difficulties, our greatest certainties and principles are often challenged. The rug appears to be pulled from under our feet. There's never a necessity to belittle trials. God doesn't. He treasures up the tears of his people. He hears their cries. He knows our weariness and our laments. But the way we deal with our trials is to put them in the perspective of faith. Rather than being bowled over by the negative experiences of life, we who are in Christ are to follow the Spirit's direction in how we respond to trials. And that's why we do well to listen to the instruction the Holy Spirit gives to us in the first verses of this letter of James. 
as is true of every passage of Scripture. These verses have been given to us in order that we be transformed and changed by the renewal of our minds. So let us listen with the ears of faith to what the Spirit of God gives to us and says to us. We'll look at this under the following theme, the Holy Spirit teaches us how we are to accept trials. And as we work through this, we'll see that there are three key words in the development of our text. The word joy, the word patience, and the word perfect. This letter, written by James, is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, in both Old and New Testament, the number 12 is associated with the gathering of the church. So James's opening statement indicates he is addressing the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than likely, these people were Jewish Christians who had been scattered after the persecution in Jerusalem that took place after the death of Stephen. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8, the verses 1 through 4. And they had been driven away from Jerusalem and had now to find their way in these new circumstances. In the opening verse of this letter, it is also clear how James views hardship and affliction. He doesn't describe himself as an important office bearer elevated above the congregation, but he speaks as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is that he submits himself to the will of God. His contemporaries understood that a bondservant was dependent on his master, not just for food and clothing, but for his general well-being. Well, as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James is not a master of his own destiny. He's not in control of his own life. The Lord Jesus is his master, and therefore he will submit himself to Christ's plan and his purpose, no matter what he faces. Now, we could read over this verse rather rapidly, but it is fascinating, telling, and intriguing that James would call himself a bondservant of Jesus. This James is the blood brother of Jesus. And James consider, considers it the greatest honor to be a servant of his brother. Since his elder brother is his Savior and Lord. His brother is God's only son. James experienced the miracle of God's love and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. He no longer views Jesus from an earthly point of view, as he had done when he did not believe, something that we are told in the Gospels that he did not believe in Jesus. But now his eyes have been opened by the Spirit, and once that happens, you will look at Jesus as he is, as Lord, the great I am who I am, 
you will bow before him who himself humbled himself and became a servant and you will acknowledge him as Savior and Messiah. You see, that already changes everything, doesn't it? When I know myself to be a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, my identity will not be determined by what others thinks. Others think and I will not be driven by success and achievements. And the best thing that can happen to me is that I am known as a servant of Jesus. And when I no longer look at Jesus from an earthly point of view, that will change how I view you too. For the most important way I look at you is that you are my brothers and sisters. And this is where James takes us as well. He addresses his readers very personally as my brothers and sisters. These people are his brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. And that is what ties them together. Nothing else. James identifies himself with them in a common bond of faith in the Lord Jesus. And then in the second verse of this letter, James gets right to the point he wants to make with these believers. Those who are in Christ will not escape the trials of life. If we conducted a poll here this morning, you'd find out pretty quickly that even though we might at times fake fine, every family and every individual faces trials and difficulties of some sort. No Christian is immune to trials. Plenty of you, if not all of you, at one point or another have been or are being called to go through the deep waters of affliction. And such trials threaten to throw us off balance as the dark storm clouds of adversity appear to block out the light of God's mercy and grace. The Lord does not promise us a life without trials. But what he does promise is to give us safe passage in and through the storms. In Isaiah 43, verse 2 and 3, the Lord speaks these consoling words, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And this is why James encourages his readers to consider it pure joy when they fall perhaps without warning, into the potholes of trials. These Christians are encouraged to maintain a joyful disposition regardless of how shaken they are by these potholes. The people to whom James writes needed to hear this. Extreme poverty enveloped much of the church at that time. Opposition 
persecution and rejection appear to be more the norm than the exception. After Stephen had been stoned to death, a persecution arose that caused the church in Jerusalem to be scattered. Believers sought refuge in Judea, Samaria, and the outlying regions of the Mediterranean coast. And having left the security of home, they faced rejection by their Jewish relatives because of their love and the devotion to Jesus Christ. They were denied work, refused help, left in dire straits of poverty. And yet these people needed to hold fast to the certainty of knowing God is at work, even in the midst of difficulties. So what James is essentially saying is this, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers and sisters, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Embrace them. God placed you in this fallen world to live and work because he intended to use the difficulties you face to do something in you that couldn't be done any other way. God is working through your daily circumstances to transform you, to rescue you from yourself. Isn't that amazing? This passage underlines trials are the instruments the Lord uses to form us and to expose the spiritual, to expose the spiritual faithfulness, endurance, growth, maturity, and completeness that he wants to see in us. Trials are not sent to cast doubt on God's promises, to, but to enrich our faith. The Lord prods and he pokes at us. He pokes us out of our securities and outward support systems and breaks us out of our sense of entitlement or our warped idea that we have a right to health, wealth, and happiness. We don't. God brings trials so that we should get on our knees in a confession of our great need of finding all things in Christ. Key word in verse 2 is count. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The word James uses indicates that when we face trials, we must elevate, evaluate, let the situation pass through our thought process in the light of God's design and his purpose and let the final outcome be joy. Such joy is learned just as we are to learn to be content in whatever state we find ourselves. If we have the idea that everything has to be running perfectly in order for us to be happy, we will be discouraged before we get five steps out of bed. And if we live only for the present and forget the future, trials will fill our hearts with gall 
instead of gladness. And the slightest frustration and setback will drag us down. Now, most people can look back at a difficulty they experienced and rejoice in the support they received or be thankful because they can see after the fact how God was fulfilling His purpose. We count it pure joy when the outcome of the trial is positive news. When we can end the day and thank the Lord for sparing lives and keeping us safe. But James instructs us to consider and count it pure joy even when there is nothing positive whatsoever about the entire experience. Even when you stand all alone. Even when your body is filled with pain and the light at the end of the tunnel is obstructed by the freight train of horrific trials. Though tears fill our eyes and anxiety threatens our hearts, we can have joy because we believe that through the trial, the Lord is fulfilling His purpose. Our sovereign Lord is leading the way directing every situation to our eternal benefit. And that gives fullness of joy. A pure, total, complete joy in the Lord. Trials pledge better things to come. Romans 8 verse 18 says it this way, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Joy in trials causes believers to consider it a privilege to have their faith tested. Not because the trial is so pleasant, but they know that through such tests, the Lord is drawing them closer to himself. For isn't it true that when faced with the trials of life, we are much more aware of the presence of the Lord? Our prayer life increases. We spend more time in the Word. We walk in communion with God. And when trials are absent, we easily become careless and comfortable in our comings and going. So the proper and Christian reaction to trials and trouble is not humanistic resignation, but joyful acceptance. And the Lord will provide us with the strength to help us through it. 1 Peter 1 verse 20 tells us when we suffer for doing what is right. And notice what Peter says. For suffering for what is right. For doing what is right. Not suffering for being right. We have God's approval. Knowing the will of God in trials and leaning on Jesus makes it possible for children of the Lord to sing psalms in prisons. With tears of grief rolling down their cheeks, they can sing praise to the Lord standing at a graveside. With the ache of loneliness, the pain of physical and emotional and mental ailments, the strain of stress and anxiety, they can still sing and make melody to the Lord in their hearts. 
We have to have a joyous attitude in trials because they draw us closer to the Lord. The author to the Hebrews encourages us to look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Yes, Jesus went through trials, looking beyond the suffering to the joy of eternal glory. And with that, we come to the next word that is key to how we accept trials. Patience, or as other translations have it, endurance. James writes, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And did you notice something? We count it all joy when we face various trials based on what we know and not on how we feel. Our feelings and reactions are subservient to what we know. By going through trials or by seeing others go through them, we learn that the testing of our faith works patience. And we know that from what God has revealed to us in Holy Scriptures. Trials are meant to produce something very beneficial for ourselves and for others who see God at work in us throughout the time of testing. So the way we react to trials gives testimony to others of what being in union with Christ looks like. The Lord tests us by means of various difficulties to increase our level of endurance. The Lord tests us through trials to steady us and to strengthen our patience. Implied in the word testing is the idea that what God intends to do with a specific trial will be completed successfully. What a comforting thought. When you think you can't go further and you're so done and you feel paralyzed by the affliction, God assures you that you can go on in His strength. Your heavenly Father preserves you in such a way that you will persevere to the end. Trials are designed to produce a tenacity of spirit that holds on under pressure while waiting God's time. Every time we go through a trial, we are strengthened in our faith. The Lord tests our faith to produce greater endurance and for greater service so that we may be mature and complete. And verse 4 concludes, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That brings us to the third key word. James exhorts us to let God do His work in our lives when He sends trials. Unbelief has no patience and cries out, Oh God, what do you think you are doing? You don't care at all about me, do you? Unbelief tries to get rid of the trial 
because it doesn't fit in our lives with the narrative of having everything exactly the way we want to have things right now. But James reminds us to let patience do what God wants it to do. The word perfect does not mean sinless, but has the idea of getting us to the place where the Lord wants us to be, to be mature in our faith. It is exactly the same word that Jesus used when he said in Matthew 5, verse 8, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Being perfect means being complete. And being complete is to act according to the purpose for which we have been created. And that's where God wants us to be. And that's where he leads us through the trials of life. And what that requires of us is an undivided heart. James says, let patience have its full effect. The Lord wants your minds to be set on one thing, namely His service. You are to live for Him with the totality of your being. The trials that you are confronted with in life are meant to lead you to greater patience, which in turn must result in seeking the Lord with your whole being. Job is an example of such perseverance. As he sat out on the garbage heap, afflicted with sores and totally misunderstood by his friends, he was extremely miserable and troubled. And yet, looking beyond the trial, while in the trial, he breaks forth and sings of his Redeemer. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. That's a marvelous example of how a severe trial produced endurance and patience. Was it easy for him to get there? Absolutely not. And then there's the prophet Habakkuk. He cries out to the Lord in his affliction and confesses in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on our vines, the produce of the olive fail and fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. And Habakkuk isn't talking about food shortages here, but total crop failure and empty barns. No meat, no fruit, no vegetables, no animals, no grain to offer as sacrifices in worship. But the prophet continues, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. His response to this trial is a maturity that only faith in the Lord can provide. Well, brothers and sisters, learn from what the Scriptures reveal to you. God is the strength and of your life 
and your salvation. Pray that you and fellow believers are not overwhelmed by afflictions. The Lord who created and adopted you knows what's best for you and gives you every reason to sing. A 19th century hymn writer put it this way, My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I catch the sweet, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comfort die? The Lord my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gathered round? Songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? I lift my eyes, the cloud grows thin, I see the blue above it, and day by day this pathway smooth since first I learned to love it. The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing, all things are mine since I am His. How can I keep from singing? Indeed. How can I keep from singing? As a servant of God and of Christ Jesus, I am safe in the care of my Savior who takes me through all trials and causes me to persevere and does so as the author and finisher of my faith and who does so as a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Amen.